We're in a series called Reach on how we share the gospel with people, how we talk about the good news of what God has done in our lives and what God's done in, in Jesus to people who maybe don't believe it or people who may not know much about it or whatever it might be. And Joe introduced the series by talking about Jesus's invitation to come fishing with him, uh, using that as a picture for evangelism. And then last week, I looked at asking. And today we're going to look at answering, the flip side of, you know, you ask people questions like Jesus does, but you also sometimes have to answer people's questions. Because as we talk about Jesus with people, and that's obviously something you'd expect, like given what I do, that's something I do a lot, but you talk about Christianity, you talk about Christian themes or God or Jesus with people, and you tell other people what God's done in your life and what God has done in Christ for the world, they often ask us things, or you might want to ask me something, or you might want to ask someone else something, and sometimes those questions are very difficult. So, I was at dinner with, uh, Rachel and I were at dinner uh, just, what, three weeks ago with our friends who, uh, they've become really good friends of ours. They've actually been to church with us a couple of times, but um, not Christians, um, but we've had a, got a really strong friendship with them. We met up with them, you know, a bunch and, and had them around and all that sort of stuff. And we're out for dinner, this nice, nice place. Um, and we just, the conversation turns, I can't remember how it got there, to the fact that a colleague of Rachel had recently been murdered. And you may have, it was a tragic story, which you may have seen on the news, this guy up in Sheffield who stopped to intervene in a, someone who'd been beaten up and ended up getting killed himself. Um, the funeral was just the other day, actually. And they knew about this story and knew that Rachel had worked with him. And so they're just asking this like very honest question, like, so how do you as Christians who say you believe in a loving God who is powerful and able to stop this kind of thing, and yet he didn't, how do you make sense of that? It's kind of really, I'll come back to that question in a few moments, what we actually said, but it's kind of, sometimes those questions are hard questions, right? That's probably the hardest question you get is, what about suffering? Uh, lots of other examples, and one that I've quoted before, but it was just quite a pithy example of this. I've just been to a church meeting. I'm hanging around afterwards, chatting to some people who were visiting. They've never been to church before. I say to them, what did you make of the service? And they say, oh, I like this was interesting, but I just don't get why you think that two people who love each other can't get married. There's a question about gay marriage, and, um, because, which had just become legal. And they asked the teenage girls, they asked this question. And again, quite so you'll go, okay, I need to provide an answer in some way to that question. Now, there's a few big questions like that that come up all the time. Suffering, slavery, sexuality, science, scripture. They're five big ones, five S's I often think of that come up a lot, but there's a few others. There's not loads, but you know, there's a number of questions which will frequently come up when you have conversations with people about the Christian faith. And that's why Christians are called to reach people, not just with questions, but with answers. The, the technical sounding word for this is apologetics, which comes from the a word we're gonna, that appears in the passage we're gonna read in a moment, um, which is the, the Greek word for an answer or a defense. It was like a technical defense you'd make if someone was accusing you of something and how you'd defend yourself. Um, so we're gonna turn in our Bibles to Acts chapter 22, uh, Acts chapter 22, which, as I say, is the first, it's actually the first place in the Bible where this word, apologia, for apologetic or defense, that word, first time that appears. Um, and I think Paul's defense in this passage, when he's accused of things and people want an answer from him, actually teaches us a lot about how we, about answering, about how we answer questions in, in sort of, as a good framework for thinking about good answers to questions when people are wanting to push back on you for what you believe. In this particular situation, what's happened is Paul has just been arrested after being falsely accused of taking Gentiles with him into the temple. And now he makes his defense. 
and it's a masterclass in answering or in apologetics, even though the questions Paul's answering are not actually the ones that we face. So we're going to walk through the chapter a bit at a time, and we're going to see how Paul does it, how Paul goes about answering for himself and what he believes and what he's done. Acts chapter 22, beginning at verse 1. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God, as are all of you to this day. I persecuted this way, means Christianity, to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. Let's just pause there for a moment. Effective answering, or apologetics, or responding to when someone asks you the question, effective answering means you've got to understand your audience. I mean, and this might sound incredibly obvious, but look what Paul does. Who is, when someone's asking me a question, who are they? That's where it begins. That's why it's good to ask before you answer. What do these people currently believe? What common ground might we already share? Now, Paul knows exactly what's going on here because he, not, he, he ha, has been put on trial by fiery, patriotic, militant Jews because Paul himself used to be a fiery, patriotic, militant Jew. He's still a Jew, obviously, and he's still pretty fiery, but he knows exactly what's going on because they're now treating him the way he used to treat other people. So he's got quite a lot of common ground, but he then quickly works to establish as much common ground as he can, and not in like a sort of tacky, you know, telesales kind of way. Uh, sorry for those of us who work in telesales. He's not sort of quickly trying, oh, what's the weather like there? It's like, no, I'm genuinely trying to show you that you and I have got quite a lot in common here. So verse two, they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language. There's linguistic common ground. Verse 3, I'm a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought upon this city. There's an ethnic alignment, a geographical alignment with these people. Being zealous for God, as are all of you to this day. There's a religious alignment. Like You and I have got the same kind of passion for God. As the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. He's even got experiential common ground, which is to say, I mean, they've, they've, got, they've experienced, some of them have experienced his own zeal for God. So he can say, you, you guys know me. You know that I'm like this. You, you can witness to the fact that I used to live this way myself. In other words, I've got a lot of co- in common with you. You are putting me on trial, and I want to affirm some of the reasons why that's happening. I, obviously, I don't agree with them all, but I can see that from your perspective, putting me on trial seems to make sense. You're Jewish. Me too. You're zealous. Good. So am I. That's where he starts. And that's why we talked about asking before we talked about answering. In order to give a half-decent answer to someone's question, you have to know who they are, where they're coming from, and why they're asking. So that question we got asked over dinner the other day, what we actually said was, you know, when they said, how how can you possibly believe in a loving God when this person is randomly murdered for no good reason and God could have stopped it and he didn't, as Rachel was was brilliant, she immediately said, well, to be honest, initially, in in the initial moment, there are some ways in which it makes it harder to believe in a good God because there is someone to, there's someone to take the problem to. There's someone to blame. You, if you don't believe in God, there's nowhere to go. But also, if you don't believe in God, there's no hope. There's no hope of redemption. There's no hope of resurrection. This is what I then said. There's no hope of resurrection. 
So it's, yes, initially it makes it harder because you say, God, why did this happen? But actually in, in the end and in, in an ultimate sense, it's much more meaningful because you can appeal to someone and say, you're going to put this right. And I don't know why it's happened and I have to live with that, but I know that you can redeem and you can raise and you can make whole and bring justice. The conversation I had with these teenage girls about gay marriage, that was very different. It's a different dynamic. They're, I don't know them so well, but they're also being a bit more sort of playful and mischievous in the conversation. And they're passionate, but I do already know, you guys are passionately convinced of something that 10 years ago, teenagers were not convinced of at all. So I thought it was worth a shot. And what I said to them, they said, why do you believe two people who love each other can't get married? And I just said to them, why two? Why not three? Why not five? Where, do you, where have you got your vision of marriage from? And obviously what I'm trying to expose there is a question like, you've got norms as well. The question is, where do they come from and what are they based on? And are they based on how you have children or not? And so that's where I was going and that's how I had. So very, very different situations. And the way you answer, of course, is very different because you've got to try and know your audience. So that's what Paul does at the start. Second thing we can learn from Paul is tell your story. Let's read, from, carry on, verse 6. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but they didn't understand the voice of the one who's speaking to me. And I said, What shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, Rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I couldn't see because of the brightness of the light, I was led by hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you've seen and heard. And now why'd you wait? Rise, be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. The second thing we can learn from Paul about answering is simply tell your story. Now some of us are really good at this and some of us find it much harder, but share your testimony. Tell people what God has done for you. Pretty much everybody likes a good story and it's a chance to witness to God's saving power in your own life. The challenge is that your story may well not be as dramatic as Paul's. In fact, I would say almost no one in human history has had as dramatic a conversion as Paul's. And one of the problems with his conversion is it's so famous and so dramatic that people think that's how you have to tell your story. And so they then sort of engineer their story to try and make it sound as dramatic and epic as possible. But that might not be your story. You might say, no, I wasn't a persecutor of Christians. I wasn't a, someone who hated the church and was trying to destroy it and then saw a blinding light and met the risen Jesus. No, that's not how mine. My story was, yeah, my mum died when I was a teenager. And I honestly, if it hadn't been for God, I don't know what I would have done or how I would have made it. God carried me through a really hard time. Your story might be pretty much my story, which is, well, my parents always said they believed that knowing Jesus was the greatest joy in the world. And I watched their life closely for 20 years. And I basically went, yeah, I believe you. And that's how I came to meet Jesus. I heard this message. I saw it lived out. And I thought, yeah, sounds about right. I remember one woman saying her story was just almost a sentence. She said, I was in a really dark place and Jesus came to me. And I love that guy. That might be your story. 
It might be a, a healing story. Praise God, there's plenty of those in this church. It might be a story of forgiveness, a reconciliation story. It might be, a, again, my story is about a parenting children with special needs story. I've seen God's goodness through difficult times. So don't try and copy Paul. Don't try and make your story just like this one. But the one way we should try and copy Paul is in how Jesus-centered the story is. See, often when we give testimony, we can fall into the habit of doing like a little speechy, TED-talky thing where we're really focusing on us and the things you can learn from what happened to us, how we used to be, how we felt, how we changed. But Paul, who's got the most dramatic conversion story in history, doesn't do that. He actually keeps focusing in on Jesus, what he was like, what he said, what he did. He said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, verse 8. The Lord said to me, rise, go into Damascus, verse 10. The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and hear his voice, verse 14. So tell your story, but tell people what Jesus has done, not just what you've done and how it's made you feel. That might be very obvious, but it is important, I think, as well. So know your audience, tell your story. The third thing we can learn from Paul, and this is going to sound a bit odd, because it might not be quite what you're expecting next in a course of talking about reaching people with the gospel. But the third thing to do, to do is actually know your rights, at least in this passage. Know your rights. Let's read from verse 22 and you'll see why I'm saying that. Up to this word, they listened to him. Then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, the tribune ordered him, Paul, to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they'd stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? When the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said, what are you about to do? This man's a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought my citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized Paul was a Roman citizen and he bound him. But on the next day, Desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Paul is not a fragile victimhood kind of character. He's not continually complaining. He's a, actually a very robust man. He doesn't shrink from persecution. And actually, both the book of Acts and all of Paul's letters make it very clear that he regularly suffers beatings, imprisonment, stonings, what we would now call torture, no question. But Paul is not an idiot about it. He doesn't, he's not a masochist. He's not trying to get into pain-inducing situations. He knows his rights. He knows, I'm a Roman citizen. And within this empire, it's illegal to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been properly tried. And he's prepared to play the get-out-of-jail-free card if it's going to help. Now, he doesn't play it all the time. In, in fact, there's one of the interesting things as you read Acts. You think, wow, Paul sometimes goes there and sometimes he doesn't depending on the situation. But he's not what people unkindly nowadays would call a snowflake. He's not someone who runs around going, help, help, I'm being repressed, I'm being... Re he's not like that sort of Monty Python kind of character. But he does know the law. And he knows that in this case, they're in the wrong and he's in the right. And he's prepared to say so. And that, in most ordinary situations, this probably doesn't come up. But it might. And it sometimes does. In the context of a workplace where you face discrimination on the grounds of Christian faith. 
There, in the UK today, it helps to know that there are nine protected characteristics, and one of them is religion or belief. So it is against the law to discriminate against you for being a Christian. And that's a wonderful thing we should celebrate. That wasn't true in the Roman Empire, obviously. Paul's only able to get this exemption because he's a Roman citizen, not because he's a Christian, but we can in that sense. That doesn't mean everyone will agree what that means. It doesn't mean that everyone will give you a pass for everything that goes with it, but it does mean that you do have rights and it's worth knowing what they are. So it won't normally come to this, but if you happen to find yourself arrested for preaching the gospel in public, which sometimes happens to people, or for praying outside an abortion center, which sometimes happens to people, or discriminated against at work for Christianity or whatever, which sometimes happens, it can be helpful to know your rights. Kind of a strange point in the broader flow, but I think it's quite interesting how often Paul does it when he's defending or answering the, for the Christian faith. Anyway, move on to the next one. First, chapter 23 and verse 1. There's five in total, by the way. We've now done three. Chapter 23, verse 1. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? And yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. The fourth thing some of us need to learn to do when we are answering for the Christian faith is to admit your mistakes. I find this hard, particularly when I'm in discussion with people, or I'm debating, or people are kind of throwing things at me, and I have to admit my mistakes. But this is what Paul does in this, in this section of the story. You probably know the quote. When Mike Tyson was preparing for his fight with Evander Holyfield, uh, Evander Holyfield had been talking about his plan for the fight, and someone put it to Mike Tyson and said, what do you feel about Evander Holyfield's pl plan for the fight? And Mike Tyson's reply became very famous. He said, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. Well, imagine you're on trial for your Christian faith and someone orders you to get punched in the mouth. Like That's the kind of thing that stops you in your tracks and causes agonizing pain and makes you react very, very badly. You know? So you can probably react to Paul's first reaction when the high priest says, hey, hit him in the mouth, and, boom, and you get punched in the mouth. God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Verse 3. But I think it's much harder to imagine myself having Paul's second reaction, which is that on hearing that this man is the high priest, and therefore Paul has just cursed the high priest, even though what he did was wrong, but Paul has cursed him, Paul instantly apologizes. I didn't know, brothers, he was the high priest, for it is written, don't speak evil against the ruler of the people. I think that is an extraordinary thing to do within seconds of being punched in the mouth. And sometimes, depending on the situation, when you're answering for the Christian faith, or, quote, doing apologetics, as sometimes people call it, you metaphorically speak, maybe literally as well, but metaphorically, you get punched in the mouth. People can say some pretty vicious things sometimes when you're talking about Christianity. But here's the fourth thing we can learn from Paul's masterclass on answering. So you've got to understand your audience, tell your story, know your rights, and admit your mistakes. Admit your mistakes. Two wrongs don't make a right. Of course, the high priest should not be ordering people to be punched in the mouth, and certainly not for saying things like, I've lived my life before God in good conscience. But Paul also recognises, yeah, no, he shouldn't have done that, but I shouldn't have cursed the high priest either. And he instantly admits it. Now, little pastoral comment. In my experience, 
people who love apologetics, answering questions, debating, making public defenses, even arguing, are not always the best at admitting when we're wrong. And I include myself in that. I love apologetics. I don't find it easy, particularly if I've said something publicly, to backpedal if I know I've got it wrong. We like confronting, we don't like confessing. And we're nervous about backing off. We need to learn from Paul's example here. Sometimes people will act badly towards us and we will then respond badly towards them. When that happens, not if, but probably when, it takes huge courage to admit that we're wrong in that moment. Yet it is curiously powerful. People are often struck by the willingness of somebody to admit that they were wrong quickly, particularly if it's hostile. But people who believe in grace have nothing to fear from admitting our mistakes. Because ultimately we're not judged by them, we're judged by him. So committing, admitting your mistakes is actually fine. It's quite liberating. It can be hard in the moment though. And Paul models for us really well here. Admit your mistakes. And then finally, chapter 23, verses 6 to 10, explain your hope. Verse 6. Now when Paul perceived that one part of this group putting him on trial, one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, which is different, different factions within the leaders of the time, basically. He cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. And when he'd said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there's no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply. We don't see anything wrong with this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. Now, this is a mischievous tactic from Paul, right? Paul knows, because he's been one, he's a Jew, he's very learned, he knows all of these guys well. Paul knows that the Pharisees believe in resurrection and miracles and spirits, and the Sadducees don't. So he basically pokes the pig. He says, well, I'm here because of the resurrection. I believe in the hope of the resurrection of all the dead because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And I'm, that's the reason I'm here. So what do you think about that? And the two of them start yelling and all falling out. But Paul is being maybe mischievous, but he's not being cynical. If you read his sermons and acts, you'll find that Paul, he's not only playing this card now, he's always talking about the hope of the resurrection. Everywhere he goes, he talks about Jesus being risen from the dead. He said, in fact, he preaches the resurrection so much that in Athens, people hear him talking about Jesus and Anastasis, which is the word for resurrection, and, he can, and they conclude he's talking about two gods, Jesus and Anastasia. Like that's, what he, that's what they think he means, because he's saying Jesus and resurrection so much. So Jesus, Paul does this a lot, and he does it here and throughout Acts, because at root, the Christian gospel is a message of resurrection hope. And that's the hope that we were trying to share about with my friends over dinner when they were talking, asking us these questions. Like, this, there is hope. There is resurrection hope. There is hope of a, Jesus is alive. Jesus stepped out of the tomb. Death does not have the final word. Life in the end wins and it's painful now, but the day is coming when creation will be renewed. You will be raised, so will I, because Jesus is alive. That's a message with profound hope, massive implications. And it means you basically live day to day thinking, 
do you know the world in the distant future is going to be much better than it is now? And most people in this city don't believe that. Most people in this city believe the world in the distant future is going to be worse than it is now, if it's here at all. And some of them might think, well, it goes up, it goes down, it goes up, it goes down. Christians don't. Christians believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Christians believe that his kingdom will have no end. Nobody else does. So Christian preaching and Christian answering and Christian conversation should always have more hope than anybody else or more hope, not less, than all the other messages in town. So Paul cuts through the flannel and he gets to the, the key issue here. It's like, in the end, let's forget who took who into which temple and whether they'd washed first. That's not ultimately what this is about. This is about the resurrection from the dead. Do you believe? Do you believe Jesus is alive? And do you, do you believe that you're going to be raised to and inherit new creation with him if you believe in him? Because if you believe those things, the other stuff doesn't really matter. Or do you not believe Jesus is alive? You believe he's still dead. This is all charlatanry, in which case, of course, you're going to be angry about it. Paul cuts through the flannel. And so often that's really what, there's the debates you sometimes have and get into long debates online with people and say, I've done this with people. And you think, in the end, this isn't really about that thing you're talking about. Of course, and I, I spend a lot of time thinking about how to answer questions about whatever it is. Sexuality could be dinosaur. I don't remind what it is. People have loads of questions. I want to talk to people. But in the end, this comes down to the resurrection of the dead. I'm on trial. I, the difference between us is I believe Jesus is alive and therefore everything changes. I've heard the, uh, the late Tim Keller, who's a, a great pastor in New York City, died recently. So people would often ask him these questions. Say, How can you defend this thing the Bible says? And he would say, okay, so are you saying that because you don't like this thing the Bible says that Jesus must be still dead? In other words, Let's, let's get real here. This thing, okay, we've got to think that through, but ultimately this question rises or falls on whether Jesus is alive and whether the dead will be raised. That's what I'm really on trial for, is what Paul is saying. And ultimately, Christians are not defending the Bible or sexuality or Christian values or American evangelicals or whatever. We're not defending those things. We are explaining our hope in the resurrection that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Hallelujah. So we're going to finish our service, our time together, by recentering our lives on Jesus, crucified and risen, the hope of the resurrection from the dead. We're going to have communion together. We're going to have an opportunity to take the bread and the wine, to take the body and blood of Jesus, to receive once more forgiveness, assurance of God's love for you and the power of his resurrection life, waiting for the day when he makes all things new. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this gospel and we thank you so much for this table and this meal and this invitation to all who repent and believe to come towards you now and receive the body and blood of your son. I pray that as we participate in this meal in a moment, you would renew us once again by your spirit. You would fill us with resurrection hope and you would equip us to reach the people around us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.